everyone and welcome back to Tech Talks the science and technology podcast brought to you by Insight the student media body of IIT Bombay Our second episode is also hosted by Prashant who is an ex chief editor of Insight and today he is in conversation with Shriharsh Tendulkar Hi I'm Shriharsh I'm an astronomer at TIFR and NCRA I search for bright flashes of light in the whole universe It's been a long time since we spoke, right? So, um, yeah, you were definitely really interested in um, uh, astrophysics quite a bit, like whether it was pa- as part of the astronomy club or Tech GC or what have you. And it looks like you stuck to that, right? So, like, where did you go from there? That's right. After I, I was interested in astronomy even before IIT Bombay, I my interest started growing through. these high school uh, com- competitions called the astronomy olympiads and then uh, i went through a couple of research projects i worked under a couple of astronomers throughout india uh, and after that i went to uh, caltech for my phd and i worked uh, under professor shri kulkarni working on you know neutron stars and magnetars trying to understand what their behaviors are i also built an adaptive optics system uh, for the palomar uh, 60 60 inch telescope and from there my i shifted gears uh, to radio astronomy and moved to mcgill university in montreal canada to search uh, for fast radio bursts and and i think that fast radio bursts is kind of what uh, when we were chatting intrigued me as well and i was really curious to understand more about it so how, how would you explain fast radio bursts to a lay person just in simple language and then we can go from there absolutely so Fast radio bursts are fascinating. Uh, if your eyes were sensitive to radio light, uh, you would see these bright flashes of light uh, coming randomly from different directions in the sky, thousands of times a day. And uh, some of these signals are as bright as uh, your cell phone signals. Okay, except that they are not coming from a cell phone tower which is 10 kilometers away. They are coming from halfway across the universe. And so within a few milliseconds they are producing enormous amounts of energy uh, they are producing more, more energy than the sun produces in a cu- couple of months right uh, so we don't understand how you can produce this kind of energy store it and then you know release it within a few thousands of a second the closest analogs we have which are pulsars which we know from our own galaxy uh, they are a trillion times less luminous than these fast radio bursts or frbs so these frbs are an incredible puzzle for us to solve we don't know what their origins are we don't know how they are creating this much energy and uh, we would like to use them as probes to do some sort of a tomography if you will of the universe i see and and you said like thousands of times a day too right so it's not like they're not super rare occurrences no they're not rare and despite the fact that they are not rare we did not know about these until about uh, 30 years ago now uh, uh, interesting why, why is that like is it like lack of uh, instruments that could catch it or yeah absolutely so a part of it is uh, a computational challenge so the way radio signals come from uh, travel through space they 
whenever they interact with electrons along the path from the source to the to the earth they undergo dispersion so lower frequency radio waves travel slower than higher frequency radio waves so if you have a pulse which is emitted by an object and it has it has uh, components in higher frequencies as well as lower frequencies it will get smeared out as it travels through uh, the space and so you have to correct for this dispersion and you don't know how much dispersion there is you just have to search for different dispersion measures to find the pulse so when uh, people started discovering pulsars uh, back in the 70s you know there was no computation and people tried to detect pulsars as far as, as much as they could people only looked for only searched up to a certain level in dispersion because we had an idea of how many electrons there are in the milky way in any di- given direction so we said okay there can't be anything outside it so let's not search for it we'll save on computation but then in 2007 duncan lorimer uh, just decided of just off chance to increase the limit of this computation and search for higher dispersion measures and they found this really bright burst in archival data from the parkes telescope in uh, australia and the dispersion from this burst which indicates uh, you know how many electrons it has gone through suggested that it came from much much further away than our galaxy so the galaxy could have contributed only a third of the electrons that we are we are seeing in this signals dispersion and so that was the first puzzling thing and people started wondering how is this burst coming from so far away it was really bright and it seemed to be coming from really far away uh, so you know in the beginning people were thinking that maybe this is something terrestrial and duncan lorimer has mistaken that mistakenly th- thought it to be astrophysical that people came up with lots of different so you you mean like terrestrial as in like is it just being caused by something on earth basically like one of our yes absolutely so uh, there is a lot of uh, terrestrial interference uh, so cell phones tv stations uh, can cause a lot of these bright flashes and so i'll come to that in a moment there is a, a very funny anecdote about that as well i'll come to that in a moment so people for, from 2007 uh, till about 2013 people were not quite sure what to think of this lorimer burst as it is now called and in 2013 there was another paper which published and showed that there is a cosmological population of these bursts there are five more which were detected which is great uh, but at the same time there was another problem which was introduced was that a couple of bursts were detected at the parkes telescope itself which seemed to be aligning at noon times in australia so around lunch time in australia there would be a burst and that is weird because the universe doesn't know about lunch time in australia right right so there was this very nice uh, detective work that was done by a graduate student emily petrov who found out that if you open a microwave oven uh, while it is in the middle of its cycle and if it's a specific type of microwave oven which they had at the visitor center in the parkes telescope you can produce a similar signal there are differences but you can produce a fairly similar signal to what you get from an FRB. So that was a bit of a bummer, but we are glad to find that out since then microwave ovens have been banned. If I'm understanding this right, what basically happened is like there was a signal that was repeating uh, with Earth's like rotation um, on its own axis, basically, right? Like if, if it's at lunchtime every day. Uh, exactly. So which... at lunchtime, you never could have to know about it, but it doesn't. 
crazy exactly. and, and then so it turns out it's it was uh, it was coming from the microwave <laughs> yeah it, th- those signals which were later called peritons uh, were it turned out to be coming from microwaves but they had other distinct properties which distinguished them from real frbs so mm. the real frbs were safe got it yeah so since then we have you know the rate of discovering frbs has ramped up quite a bit uh, earlier people used to search in archival data and uh, look for frbs and the first telescopes which were used for detecting frbs looked at small parts of the sky maybe about the size of half the full moon uh to search for frbs but the sky is a big place so even if there are thousands of them every day the chance of getting one in your telescope's field of view is very small so now we are going to the field is moving towards telescopes which can see huge swaths of the sky simultaneously uh, at the same time and so your detection rate goes up hmm and and this is like you're saying this started happening some 5 6 years ago or you're saying this is state of the art today it is state of the art today so we are now over the past 2 years we have been able to you know get to a point where we can observe huge swaths of the sky got it got it so the, let, let me go back a few years then 2007 was really the first time when someone noticed this and then it even after that it was a while before people found even five of them absolutely uh, and so by then it sounds like everyone was already interested in knowing what these are right like or, or what's causing them was that the main mystery or was it more like where where in the universe it's coming from so both of these were a mystery so we didn't know the exact distances to these objects right we we can only estimate it from the dispersion measure what what we call the dm uh, which is a count of the number of electrons from us to you know whatever the source is so we have an have a model for how much the milky way is contributing and we have a model of how electrons are distributed in the rest of the universe but there are huge uncertainties in those so we didn't know what the exact distance was and consequently we didn't know how much energy it is actually emitting so you could have you know a lower brightness a lower luminosity frb which is closer to us or a really really luminous frb which is farther away uh so that was one of the questions and other than that people are simply interested in what sort of emission mechanism could this be so theorists were really excited theoretical astronomers uh, came up with i think 80 or so different models for what frbs could be and i cataloged i think almost all of them in this frb theory catalog which we, we wrote with some colleagues that that's a so i i was actually going to ask like when when someone in the field of astronomy notices something like this right like that can cannot is readily be explained is part of it just like that inquisitive drive behind all uh, science where like we need to find out what this is or uh, like are there examples other examples where something like this was found and then it it led to uh, you know uh, improving our understanding of how the universe works and and is that what drives the community that any time we see something new like this it could potentially add to our understanding of how things work in the universe right uh, so it's both of them the first is just absolute curiosity about what is causing these things because it it might lead to some sort of an exotic object right which we didn't know about or it could be exotic behavior from an object which we do know about but we had not never thought that this kind of a behavior would be possible so all of these transients which occur you know on a few millisecond time scales 
and they're incredibly luminous, they need to have uh, to be generated from compact objects. So either neutron stars or black holes or white dwarfs or something that is very small because the sun, can, for, for example, is huge and it can't change on very short time scales. So anything that is large cannot change on very short time scales. So we are probing the smallest, most compact objects which have the highest densities, the strongest magnetic fields anywhere in the universe. So you're basically trying to find new probes of matter in extreme conditions, right? And the other aspect, of, which is particularly for FRBs, which was interesting, was that because of this dispersion, you can probe how electrons are distributed in the universe. And you can also probe how magnetic fields are distributed in the universe, which is very interesting because we want to understand how uh, magnetic fields arose in the universe in the first place. Right, so we know that we can amplify magnetic fields, but we don't know how to generate magnetic fields from scratch. So there are a lot of different theories about how magnetic fields came about in the universe. And so these kinds of uh, FRBs, if you have a lot of them and you probe different directions in the universe, you could actually un try to understand how magnetic fields were generated in the first place or how structure formed in the universe. So once people realize that you have this probe of uh, the universe which in the future could do this sort of tomography people were really excited you were talking about how like it wasn't easy to detect these you know part of the challenge is just the expanse out there that you need to look in right to detect them and um, when i was chatting with you earlier um, a few weeks ago you know we were talking about your detection at uh, at chime what exactly happened there like what was the breakthrough let me go back before Chime a little bit. One of the things which happened was that using this telescope called Arecibo uh, in Puerto Rico, this was this is the same telescope which recently uh, collapsed, unfortunately. Uh, it was very sad for us. That was a telescope which was uh, crucial in one of the biggest discoveries for FRBs in 2014. Uh, you see, most FRBs uh, show up as single bright flashes of light. So there's a flash from a random direction and a particular dispersion measure and you you can look at the same location for a long time later and it doesn't repeat again but uh, there was this frb which is discovered by arecibo and we were following it up and we detected multiple bursts from the same location with the same dispersion measure so we know that they're coming from the same source so this was the first repeating frb which was really exciting because now what it means is that you can go to other telescopes which are better at pinpointing the location of this FRB. So we went to the very large array, the VLA, and we tried looking for this FRB and waiting for it to repeat. And then once it repeated, we were able to pinpoint the location and we were able to detect the host, uh, find what is the host galaxy of this FRB. So it turned out to be this really tiny dwarf galaxy, which is weird because you know most, if you if you expect that you know FRBs came from neutron stars or magnetars, uh, which are very young neutron stars, you would expect that they come from these big galaxies because most neutron stars are in big galaxies. There are very few of them in these tiny dwarf galaxies. And so that was a big surprise, big shocker for us. And so I, I, and this was the first time uh, go ahead. we were able to directly measure the distance to the FRB and show that it is cosmological. So show that it's cosmological as opposed to what do you mean? One possibility was, you know, FRBs could be just outside the Milky Way, 
right? We we knew that it is sort of out there outside the Milky Way based on the dispersion measure, but you could argue some people might argue that oh, maybe it is just outside the Milky Way, but not really, you know, halfway across the universe. This it turned out was uh, about a third of the way across the universe, which is exciting for us. Oh wow. Uh, I'm I'm pretty sure I'll butcher the technical details of this, but you were mentioning how you would think it would come from like a neutron star or a magnetar, and that that would belong in a large galaxy. Did, did I kind of get what you were saying there? Yeah, absolutely. So, what's the specific um, like mechanism there? Like, so you you have this neutron star, and then what leads to an FRB or a radio burst? Yeah, so we don't know exactly what oh, okay. creates FRB. So. There are two things. One is you need an emission of energy, and then you have to uh, convert that energy to electromagnetic radiation somehow. Uh, and there are a lot of different theories for uh, both of these, both both parts of this equation. Most of them involve neutron stars or magnetars because everybody agrees that we need strong magnetic fields to do the conversion of energy to electromagnetic radiation, which we see. But how exactly it occurs? is a pretty open question. There are a lot of different ideas. And then, so you guys, you were able to kind of pinpoint the location in a sense, like which, where is this coming from? And it turns out it's coming from a dwarf galaxy. Yeah, we were able to pinpoint the location and we were able to say a lot about the kind of environment that this FRB was born in. So the in astronomy, the uh, environment in which you are to detect something makes, can tell you a lot about uh, the kind of object that it could be because galaxies have different neighborhoods. There are stellar nurseries where stars are actively being born and you can see uh, very young stars over there. There are neighborhoods which have had their star formation long time ago and then what you see is old residual stars. And so you don't expect to see young stars there. So what we found was that this FRB was located in a very uh, actively star forming region of this dwarf galaxy. So it was more likely to be associated with a young star or recently a star that recently underwent a supernova and converted into a neutron star. Got it. So whatever it is that's causing the burst, they've all happened like a while in the past, basically. Yeah. The burst actually travels about a billion years and it's detected within, you know, the detection lasts only for a millisecond, <laughs> which is crazy to think about. Yeah. Right. Very cool. And um, and I guess if you know, if, you, if you're able to like kind of gauge the location, you pretty much know how far it has traveled, uh, like uh, rather how long it took for it to travel. Yes, because uh, you measure the uh, redshift of the galaxy and that because we know from Hubble's law how galaxies are expanding, uh, how the universe is expanding. So if we measure the measure how fast this galaxy is moving or that is to say measure its redshift, then we can try to estimate the distance to it. Yep. Yep. A lot of things that I read in college are screaming back into my head right now. <laughs> Very cool. And, and then so like, then you guys detected it. And um, I, I remember reading uh, the, like one of the articles that you wrote about your finding. And I, I think you were talking about how like it was like any other day, except it wasn't. <laughs> and uh, right. yeah, yeah. So was it like the very first day your telescope was op operational, you caught the signal or did I read that wrong? Pretty much. I mean, so let me give you a background. Uh, as I said earlier, most telescopes which are built previously can look at only small parts of the sky at once. And uh, since the discovery of FRBs, everybody wanted to look for look at huge uh, parts of the sky uh, and search for FRBs. 
So there was this telescope which is called the Canadian Hydrogen Intensity Mapping Experiment, the uh, acronym as CHIME, and uh, it it was made for the cosmology. So it was made to map hydrogen in the universe, as it as the name suggests. But what it did was it used to look at a huge swath of the sky as it uh, as the Earth rotates, uh, and that and the sky moves up overhead. Uh, so this telescope was also the design of the telescope was excellent for detecting fast radio bursts because this is precisely what we need. So a group of uh, scientists, uh, including my postdoctoral supervisor, uh, Dr. Vicky Cassie, they proposed to put a large computing backend uh, underneath this telescope and then use the same data simultaneously for cosmology and for FRB detection. And that's where I came in. I, I was a part of the team which Know, built the entire uh, data pipeline and the computing aspects. We had been working for a couple of years writing a data pipeline that could take data from the telescope and then you know search it uh, for FRBs and then make a detection and let us know that, okay, look, this is an FRB. And the first time we switched it on, we had switched on only about a quarter of the telescope and we were all sitting in this uh, windowless room uh, at McGill uh, and we're all, it was basically a coding coding marathon, what we call a codathon, because we write a lot of software. And uh, one of my friends spoke me like, does this look like an FRB to you? And I said, yeah. And then we, you know, everybody started poking each other like, look, 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 this is something really exciting. And just like that, within a few hours of starting up our one fourth of our telescope, we had detected our first FRB. And so we were really excited. And this was the first FRB which was detected in the frequency range that Chime operated on, so between 400 to 800 megahertz. And before that, there had been no FRBs that had been detected at such low frequency. So there was always this worry in the back of our mind that what if we never detect any FRBs at these low frequencies? What if they're all detected you know, at higher frequencies? So at 1.4 gigahertz was the standard frequency which all the previous FRBs had been detected at. Got it. And and then like it turns out you didn't have to worry about it at all, <laughs> and you learned no, that. No, we didn't have to worry about. Yeah, we didn't have to worry about it at all. Since then, you know, we switched on the entire telescope, and we have been detecting uh, hundreds of FRBs by now. So everything is working, chugging along. And uh, there are parts of what you just explained that um, you know uh, that I only superficially understand. So you're mentioning how it's trying to map hydrogen in the universe. I'm sure that that's like an hour-long discussion on its own, if not more. You guys realized this could also be great for FRB detection. Was that more because of uh, how much of the sky it was looking at, or it was also that it was listening for this for a similar kind of signal? Uh, it was basically because of the field of view, how much sky it can cover in one okay. uh, go. It was not set up to search for these bursts for these particular signals at all. In fact, we had to uh, do a lot of work to change the pipeline such that, you know, apart from getting the kind of data that the cosmology team wanted, we could also get the data that we wanted. So it's the same data which comes in at the antennas, right? It is digitized, but then after that, what you do with it is completely different. Got it. And that was the other part that I found really, uh, uh, you know, interesting about what you said. Like it starts off very much as a physics uh, cosmology problem and then quickly turns into a data or software problem. Like so many other things, obviously, today. Um, yeah, absolutely. 
and and it sounds like a lot of work that you guys did was in fact in that space as well wrangling with all this data that's coming in and figuring out how to squeeze out the useful information from it yes so a lot of our work you know is i hate to be uh, sound cliche but it is basically searching for needles in haystacks uh, we get 13 terabits of data per second from china wow and mm. uh, so then it is compressed down to 130 gigabit gigabytes a second and that has to be searched for uh, these bursts which themselves last only uh, a millisecond right so mm. for every burst you are uh, and they, they, there are what five or six bursts which are real frbs every day but you get a lot of signals from uh, aircraft which are flying overhead uh tv station cell phone antennas nowadays even cars have wifi and bluetooth for some reason right and so if there are cars passing by on the highway you would get these uh, spurious signals and so there are there are almost a million false signals for every real frb and so wow. we have to go through all of that data and distinguish in real time with a very low false positive rate what uh, what we are seeing and so and once we detect an frb we want to save the data right so we can't save all of this 130 gigabytes of data for coming in so we have to uh, make a distinction in real time uh, whether we want to save a chunk of data where we think the frb lies and then we can you know reprocess that data offline but we have to make a decision right there and then huh let's that yeah I, i wouldn't have thought of that that makes sense and is it not even like you can i don't know uh, store maybe the last hour of data or something like that it absolutely has to be look at it while right. it's in flight and then discard it basically so uh, we buffer the data in ram so we have a huge uh, ram buffer actually distributed among uh, 256 computers uh, so what we do is we buffer different kinds of data one one thing is to buffer the raw voltages and we can buffer about 40 seconds of that and that you know cost us a, a few million dollars in just ram phew uh, hmm. there's probably not a few million how i think half a million dollars in ram Let's oh is that is that is that all <laughs> <laughs> yeah and uh, then there is the intensity data which is a reduced version of the uh, of the raw voltage data and we can store about a uh, few minutes of that but that is compressed so it is not as high quality Yeah, so uh, I mean I think that totally makes sense and then like a lot of the software was it uh, homegrown like did you guys basically just sit and write things from scratch or what is there software that you know people like us would know that you actually ended up using for this purpose Uh no there is no software which is uh which can do what what we have been doing I mean there are parallel efforts by other uh, observatories but uh, each telescope has its own you know um, tiny weirdnesses and data formats are different so it's easier to uh, sometimes write things from scratch unless you are in a field which has uh, matured enough that you know the data formats are standardized and everything right uh, the, the reason yeah, i ask so, is uh, yeah so i was just going to continue uh, that we did use a lot of the software developer tools though so you know when we are doing logging and log monitoring and uh, you know plotting things on so we use tools like grafana and kibana and uh, git is our standard thing for making sure you know a team of 50 people can actually do development without breaking things and 
as academics generally we tend to code extremely badly but thankfully we had uh, program managers and project managers and actual programmers who could uh, from from industry who could would tell us uh, what sort of how good code is written so you know documentation and unit tests and everything were we implemented those in real life which is really uh, good because now the code base is actually much better than what it would have been if it was just academic yeah and no, i like the candidness here <laughs> about uh, <laughs> uh, the academics and code and anyway, we can we can edit that out later if you want to by the way if you don't want to no, go no, on record fine. Uh, no, that's right. That's, so very cool. And then you you guys found this in 2018, and then it sounds like you're saying after that, it, the the frequency with which you were finding these kind of increased, and now you have the entire telescope operational, so it's catching a lot more of these too. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. So we are catching a lot more bursts. Uh, we have now found more repeating FRBs, and we have started you know finding distinct uh, signatures of these uh, of the bursts, which are. We seem to be different between repeating FRBs and other FRBs. So we are not sure whether they are different populations yet, but it seems like they behave slightly differently. So repeating FRBs seem to have these complex bursts with multiple subcomponents, and they tend to show this drift in frequency. So they show up at high frequency first, and then the second subcomponent shows up at slightly lower frequencies. The third subcomponent shows up at slightly lower frequencies. So what we call the some uh, a science reporter once very nicely described it as the sad trombone effect. You know you have the you have these falling notes of a sad trombone like pa pa pa. Right. Yeah. So it, we call it the sad trombone effect, and we see it mostly for uh, repeating FRBs and not for what till now are single FRBs. So these single FRBs could eventually repeat. You know, maybe hundred years later you might see another burst, but we can't rule that out. Got it. And. Um... The data challenge still remains, right? Like you're still looking at a lot of data to find these signals. As outside of your field, that that field, that whole field of uh, making sense of data has changed a lot, right? Like over the last, I mean, over the last multiple decades, but definitely in the last 10 years as well. Do, do you see some of those learnings from outside coming into your field as well? Like I'm referring to uh, things like using uh, neural networks or machine learning. To identify patterns. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, we have we learn a lot from you know uh, people outside the field, and uh, we do use machine learning. I I uh, I wrote some of the code which uh, uses machine learning to identify you know uh, aircraft signals from um, actual astrophysical signals. One of my students uh, who did his master's at University of British Columbia, he. Uh, also wrote a neural network code to do the same thing, do a slightly more advanced thing. So we have been using a lot of that, and there is, uh, you know, we still keep uh, improving our pipeline to do better. Very cool. Uh, yeah, no, it's it's interesting how um, you know, like state of the art in one field can help state of the art in the other. Absolutely. Um, and I mean, this seems like a prime example of where some of the advances in machine learning can help in uh, physics. And so, where are we now then? Like, are we any closer to figuring out what's causing these? Like, it seems like we know where they're coming from. Yeah, so we have the, we have identified, you know, the uh, host galaxies for a dozen. We as in, not time itself, but uh, the broader astronomy collaboration. Right. Uh, we have identified about uh, a dozen or so host galaxies. And just recently, earlier this year, there was a paper which showed that 
uh, the distribution of electrons, which we can infer based on these host galaxies and their distances and the dispersion measures, uh, does actually account for what was called the missing barium problem. We, we expected uh, from cosmology that there was this, there was about 30% of the matter uh, which was missing. And we expected that it was between galaxies, but we had no firm proof of that. And using these uh, about a dozen FRBs, uh, astronomers were able to show that the, it actually does exist in a way that we expect it to. Got it. It's something that occurred to me when you were talking about, uh, you know, these problems and earlier when you were discussing like expansion of the universe, like either with FRBs or related problems, are all these things kind of adding up to helping us understand more about either how the universe is formed or where it's going? Like are there fundamental questions yeah. that this helps answer? Yeah, so as I mentioned, you know, understanding the distribution of electrons and the, how the structure of uh, universe formed is very important. Understanding where magnetic fields came from is quite fundamental. It's going to be a long time before we are able to answer those questions because they assume that we'll have millions of FRBs and we'll have you know localized uh, all of them and we'll have detected, pinpointed uh, the host galaxies and measured the host galaxy distances. Uh, that's a very, very uh, data intensive task. And we are no, nowhere close to be, being able to do that. But eventually there is hope that we can do this. Got it. So. Meanwhile, I guess it's it, it's basically we did, the quest continues, so to say, right? Like we just the keep looking. The quest continues. Yeah. So in fact, uh, with Chime, for example, we are building these outrigger telescopes. So they would, uh, Chime on its own cannot localize uh, an FRB very well. So it can say that it's in this region, which is the size of about half the full moon, or or just a full moon. But that is not sufficient to tell us which galaxy it is coming from because there are th literally thousands of galaxies in that region. Uh, so what we need to do is to have other telescopes which are built further away, which will also detect the FRB at the same time. And then you can triangulate the position of the FRB very precisely. And once these are built over the next couple of years, we will be able to precisely localize every FRB that China detects. And other telescopes are doing similar efforts. And the hope is that we'll get a huge population of well-localized fast radio bursts. Got it. Very cool. You know, a, a lot of times when um, you hear of such findings and they make their way to like the popular press, there's always this cliched popular suggestion that, hey, maybe it's aliens. <laughs> um, so I guess we can keep uh, continuing with those speculations until you guys figure out what's actually going on. Yeah, I, I wish you wouldn't, but <laughs> I can talk to people from thinking. So. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we're just having fun, you know. Well, we know that yeah, you guys are on the job. Uh, we're just killing time. Meanwhile, <laughs> very cool. And so, probably, like, if I if I wanted to read up a little more on this or learn about the field, um, and maybe if I went ten years back and this was a field that I wanted to get into, even like, how would someone go about doing that? Right. So there are a lot of uh, very good popular science articles on FRBs now, and um, a lot has been written, you know, in the Scientific American, for example, and National Geographic, which are articles which uh, are intended for non-scientific readers or people who are interested in science but are not necessarily astronomers. So those would be good places to start. If you're a rising undergraduate or a beginning grad graduate student, I would strongly encourage you to read uh, 
the academic papers directly there are some very nice reviews which you can uh, read to understand what the what the challenges in the field are and where the field is going apart from that uh, i would strongly encourage uh, if there are any students i would strongly encourage them to strengthen their uh, tools so which is programming uh, understanding of physics basic physics and also get just to get in touch with astronomers including myself if you are interested we can you know there is there are a lot of things that uh, that can be done and the field is growing very cool uh yeah th- thank you for that shrigash this was uh, fascinating to discuss I, th- i think i told you as much when we first spoke about it and with this kind of way mm-hmm. i was pestering you to <laughs> do this chat so thank you for that